I stepped in and said I'd very much like to lead a management buyout. Buying it back wasn't easy. We were masters of our own destiny at that point. We had a product that we knew we could make really successful. And that was really when the foundry went from being a 20-person company to this rapid expansion. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. In this series, I'm getting under the skin of some of the UK's and tech world's most interesting founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs. Finding out what drives them, what keeps them awake at night and what they've learned along the way that can help us in our own lives too. This is The Ascent. In this episode, I'm fortunate enough to speak with Bill Collis, former CEO and president of visual effects software behemoth Foundry. Bill's passion for using maths and data to solve real-world problems led to his big break creating effects for one of the most iconic movies of all times. I won't spoil for now, you'll have to listen on. This was followed by a stellar career, building Foundry into a multi-million dollar world-leading creative powerhouse, which he steered through multiple private equity investments. He stepped back from Foundry to take up various high-profile chairman roles and also joined us here at Tenzing as a member of our entrepreneurs panel, which we're hugely grateful for. So with no further ado, here he is, and I hope you enjoy. Bill, thank you, superstar. Right, let's dive in. I was going to start by asking if you can recall your earliest entrepreneurial adventures, even as a child. (laughs) That is fascinating. So if you want to go really, really, really a long way back, I can remember at prep school when a bracket for the high jump bar was broken and at half term I went home and went into my dad's shed and I built a new one for them and took it back to school and uh, I remember the teachers at school being amazed that I'd done something like that in half term because most people in their half term would go off and play football or do stuff like that which I never quite understood (laughs) and then I had a wonderful uncle who in the early 80s took time to teach me about microelectronics that was just happening and we would build circuits together and then ultimately try and get computers to do things and this was in the very very early days so BBC micro days other people were writing computer games but I always wanted to get the computer to do something and to actually connect it to the outside world in some way. Were you studying maths or applied maths or something? What were you? So electrical engineering was my degree, but then I then went on to do a PhD in signal processing. But yeah, was always interested in the application of maths to solving real world problems. Was there anything that you did in PhD that linked to real world problems? Absolutely. So in signal processing, I did a lot of work on analysing heart sounds because a good cardiologist, as they can today, can listen to a heart and work out what's wrong with it. And I felt that if a human being could do that, surely we could train a neural network and train a computer to do the same thing. So I worked with the paediatric cardiology team at Southampton to try and collect a data set and then train neural networks in order to make the same diagnosis that the doctors were making. And how did you make the leap from academia into the business world? 
My PhD supervisor went off to visit a company called Snell and Wilcox that were building algorithms and hardware for the broadcast industry. And they were based half an hour away from Southampton in Petersfield. And he said, yeah, it was really fun. I said, well, should I apply for a job? And so I emailed them and they offered me a job as an algorithms engineer. So I moved from medical algorithms then to image processing algorithms. This was coming up with the algorithms needed to do a whole range of activities in the broadcast world for this of things like standards conversion and archive restoration, so tidying up old and damaged footage, making it better quality and watchable on modern televisions. I did that very happily for a number of years until one day an email landed on my desk which basically said, we understand that you guys are really, really good at doing something called motion estimation, which was the algorithms that allowed you to make frames up in between other frames. In Snell and Wilcox, we use this for standards conversion, but you could also use it for slowing down and speeding up sequences. And this person said, we understand you're the best in the world at doing this. We've got some really tricky footage. Would you be able to see if you can slow down this footage for us and my boss at the time said well why not let's have a look at it so we said yes I think we signed an NDA and a a month or so later a disc recorder arrived from America with some tapes and we loaded them onto our Sun workstation and started working on them and I spent the next six months really working on this footage and it turned out ultimately to be the bullet time sequence from the first Matrix film and the actor in it was Keanu Reeves I didn't know any of this at the time. During the months, I was staring at these few hundred frames and they went on to be used as the slow motion shots in the first Matrix film. And the person who had been in touch with me was the VFX supervisor on that film, a guy called Kim Labrary, who's now CTO of Epic Games and doing a whole load of amazing work. And that is actually what got me into the film industry because he introduced me to Simon and Bruno, who had set up the foundry and said, you should go and join them. Describe what the business was like when you turned up. Yeah, so it was small. I think I was employee number five or six. This was sort of late 90s. So what you could do with computer graphics and how you made films was rapidly developing. And the whole concept was special effects and the software for special effects. There was a lot of custom code. And so Simon and Bruno had been employed by post-production houses and they decided, well, actually, let's try and take some of this code and turn it into products. And so they had made their first product that they were selling, which was a product called Tinder. And I came along and said, I've got a whole load of maths and it would be really great to apply this maths to a whole range of new products that could be more like tools to make it easier for people to make films. So the sort of products we were thinking about at the time were things like automated wire removal. So if you had actors swinging around on wires that you were filming, and at the time, one example of that was Harry Potter playing Quidditch. Up till then, you had to hand paint out the wires on each frame of the sequence. And so I said, I can design an algorithm that would allow you to automate that process 
And we went off and made a suite of tools that was called Furnace that we productized and sold to the post-production houses all around the world. Simon and Bruno, fairly early on, looked at my coding and said, well, you're really not a coder, are you? But we, we want you to come up with these great ideas and the algorithms and the product ideas. So I spent my time doing that and they would spend their time with a lot of other talented people coding them. But that gave me the chance to then go off and show the product to our customers. And our customers at that point were the world's leading post-production houses. So in London, people like Framestore and the Moving Picture Company, people like Industrial Light and Magic in America and Weta down in New Zealand who were making the Lord of the Rings trilogy at the time. So I had this opportunity to go and work with the most talented creative artists and spend time with them trying to figure out what their problems were and how we could use maths to make tools to make their lives better and allow them to be more creative. Effectively, your role quickly evolved from maths of algorithms to almost lead commercial role. Yeah, exactly. I was doing the deals, but at the same time, I was designing the product going, well, what could we do next? Where are you struggling? How could we modify this? And then sit down with Simon and then he would eventually go off and code it up and I would repeat the process. So our product, which was Furnace, went through a number of iterations. There was Furnace 1, Furnace 2, Furnace 3, and I think it got as far as Furnace 4. Before the company had a reboot and we decided that rather than up to this point, we'd been making plugins that worked with other people's software, but we decided we actually wanted to own the host software and we wanted to have a much bigger bit of software that we controlled. And that set the foundry off on a completely new angle because it involved us through a set of complicated arrangements, firstly selling the company and then buying it back again. I led a management buyout to buy it back and buy some extra technology back at the same time. And that was backed by a VC backer, who was Advent Venture Partners in the UK. And at that point, I became CEO and set, set about building the foundry. So it started off, there were six or seven people. And then at what stage and why did it get sold to a trade person? Yeah, so it's fascinating, slightly complex. I shall try and give you a proceed version of it. So Simon and Bruno had been the main shareholders at that point for about a decade or so. They were quite keen to realise some money in the company and we wanted to do this switch from being a plug-in company to having our own big bit of software, owning our own what's called a compositor, rather than just having the plugins that plugged into other people's compositors. And at the time, the industry standard compositor was actually owned by Apple and Apple had just decided to leave the market and discontinue their product because the iPhone had come along and they realised there were better ways of making money than in the high-end film world. And there was an American company, a post-production house called Digital Domain, that was owned by James Cameron, and they had written their own compositor in order to make the film Titanic. And they'd just begun to start selling this as a product in their own right and we saw it and we thought we could turn this into a really successful product for the world to replace Apple's product and the way we set about making that happen in the end was to sell the foundry in its entirety to Digital Domain 
so it was a trade sale. They bought 100% of the company. To the outside world at the time, it looked like that actually what had happened was the foundry had bought this product, which was called Nuke, from Digital Domain, because we kept the foundry as the brand. We kept it as an entity in its own right, and we added the compositor to our product range. And then it turned out, 12 months down the line, for various reasons, Digital Domain needed to raise money, and an obvious way for them to do it was to sell the foundry. And that's when I stepped in and said, well, I'd very much like to lead a management buyout to buy the whole lot back. Oh, wow. So not only the bit we'd originally sold to them, but also this product, Nuke. Mm. Buying it back wasn't easy. It was 2008. We had a couple of attempts. The first attempt was the week that Lehman's collapsed. And not many management buyouts were happening, and ours didn't. But six months later, we did succeed in making it happen, and we bought it back. And we were masters of our own destiny again at that point, which was very exciting. We had a product that we knew we could make really successful, and a whole load of IP and a whole load of technology. And we had a really supportive backer in Advent Venture Partners. And that was really when the foundry went from being a 20-person company to this rapid expansion that ultimately we grew it to over 300 people over the next decade. I think we were expecting to grow quite fast. I can't quite remember the numbers. The reality is we grew super fast and we started expanding the product range quite rapidly. So not only did Nuke very quickly become the de facto compositor for making films. Mm. And within three, four years, I suspect, of the MBO, pretty much every major film being made was using Nuke as the compositor. And that's still the case today. But on top of that, we started growing other products via working closely with our customers a number of them came to us and said, could you help us productize some of our in-house software? And so we did deals to license software, which were like mini acquisitions. And that expanded the number of applications we were developing quite rapidly. Within a couple of years of Advent owning us, we had gone from being a plug-in company to, I think, having three major applications. Nuke was by far the biggest, but we had a product called Mario, a product called Katana as well. And at that point, we had grown probably from 20 people to over 100. Wow. I'm trying to think what the turnover would have been by then. I suspect the turnover would have been up somewhere around 13, 14 million pounds at that point. Wow. By then making a few million of EBITDA. Wow. So that's like somewhere between three and five times growth in the space of two years. And your CEO, that's quite a learning curve from a c-suite point of view isn't it yes i mean at the time you're just doing it so you just think it's completely normal because you have no option but just to get on yeah and make a success of it looking back there were lots of exciting challenges along the way there was vast amounts we didn't know it was only just around the time we were doing the mbo that we actually got our first cfo (laughs) so it wasn't many years before that that simon and i were still doing the accounts at the end of the year and sitting down and trying to reconcile the accounts ourselves budgeting was something that simon and i would sort of sit down and work out ourselves on a Mm. piece of a4 so things like having a cfo uh, debt 
So Advent introduced us to the idea of debt. Up to then, the business hadn't had any debt, and we didn't really understand why you would put debt into the business. That was another alien concept, but clearly one that we've got quite used to being backed by private equity now. Layered on top of that was a vast amount of travel, so 90-plus percent of our software we exported. A lot of it was West Coast. There was a lot in Australia, New Zealand, a growing amount in China. So I was doing a couple of long-haul flights a month at the time, as well as trying to grow the company. So it was quite an intense period, but a huge amount of fun. And so I think Advent were only invested for 18 months or two years. What drove the exit there? It was about two years. It had been an amazing period of growth. They were looking to raise another fund, and it made sense for them to sell the company. We absolutely didn't want to do a trade sale. We felt the business still had a long way to go. So we sat down and decided we'll do a secondary. Not that I even knew what a secondary was at the time. (laughs) um, That was the first time we appointed uh, advisors and bankers to help with the sale. And Carlisle came along and bought the business in a process. I didn't even know what a process was. Yeah. Um, And uh, we were helped by Armour, who were the advisors, who did a fantastic job. It was a great return for all of us. Uh, When we did the management buyout, we bought the business for about $12 million, and the sale from Advent to Carlisle was about 70-ish million sterling. So a fantastic return for everyone in just under two years. So you've gone on a huge growth trajectory. And then Carlisle, what were the big developments of the business whilst you were working with them? Just an awful lot of growing up. So possibly the best from my point of view Mm. was Carlisle helped us hire a chief sales officer, Mm. a guy called Christopher Kennessy, CK, who was my introduction to really good US-based salespeople. And to this day, I just think American salespeople are just fantastic. And CK basically came along and said, I'm in charge of sales and marketing. That's my job. I'm taking this responsibility away from you. And I'm going to go and run sales. And I still went to visit lots of customers with him. It took a bit of time, but ultimately having someone taking the weight of meeting the monthly sales figures off me was amazing. Mm. Carlisle also have a great network around the world and the the offices around the world really, really helped. So at the time, I was trying to grow fast in China where our software was used and pirated a lot and I needed a lot of help building a team there and help with lawyers there and the local Carlisle team were fantastic and looked after me and let me use their office and taught me how to use the metro to get around Shanghai and all sorts of things that I needed to know in order to build a successful business in China, which turned out to be hugely successful for us and led a lot of our growth over that period. And how did you look into like piracy and stuff like that? That's uh, the big world west software in China. How did you tackle that? Piracy was fascinating for us as an organisation. So it was obviously rife in China, and I suspect still is rife in China. But I wanted some data. I wanted to know who was using our software illegally. 
and how much of it were they using. So the first thing we did was just start putting some telemetry into the software and reporting back so we could really see who was using it and who was using illegal coppers and who was using pirated coppers. And with that data, there were lots of things you could do. So you could choose to ignore it if you want, and there are clearly many cases when the right thing to do is to ignore it. But equally, you were able to see that this wasn't just a Chinese problem. It wasn't just an Asian problem. This was a really big problem in Europe and America as well. And the great thing was we were able to solve that problem and crack that problem with the telemetry in Europe and America and build a team to fix that. And that contributed a vast amount for a few years to the growth of the foundry. But the fundamental learning was get some data. And I think that's kind of important, isn't it? Mm. And again, these days, we know how important data is. And back then, it wasn't quite so obvious. But the more data and the more knowledge you have about really what's going on with your products, who's using them, which bits are being used, how long are they spending on various bits of it, With that, you can, A, fix things like piracy, but probably far more importantly, you can start building better products because you can see which bits of the products people are spending the time in, which bits they're struggling with. And that data is just invaluable. And so you were with Carlisle for about four years, wasn't it? Yep, it was four years. We did some acquisitions, so we hadn't done any acquisitions up to that point. We'd done these licensing projects where we'd licensed code from our customers, which, as I said, were like mini acquisitions. But under Carlisle, we did some real acquisitions. So one of them was a US West Coast-based company called Luxology that made a product called Modo that was used heavily for creating 3D objects. So this was used in the film world, but also really importantly was used by designers in the concept design world. And that allowed the company to diversify away purely from film and broadcast work Mm. into design work. So using that, we started some really big projects with companies like Adidas, where we set about moving their designers from designing in a very much a 2D way using products like Photoshop and Illustrator to designing in a 3D world where they could visualise their shoe in real time, in 3D. That visualisation could be sent off to the factory so the factory would be able to will have a much better chance of building first time what the designer had envisaged as opposed to trying to interpret from flat drawings what the designer had envisaged and similarly we did a whole bunch of really exciting work with Mercedes with Daimler in trying to get 3D images onto their dashboards so today many of the cars we drive have LED dashboards with some quite impressive graphics on it and we were some of the pioneers in putting really high quality graphics onto dashboards. Extended products and extended verticals, effectively. Exactly. And all of that led to, again, really nice growth over those four years. And Carlisle felt the time had come to sell the business. And again, we were, I guess we were more open at this point to a trade buyer, but equally weren't close to another private equity deal and ran another process. By then, we were quite familiar with processes and advisors, again, using Armour. And this time, HG Capital came along and Nick Humphreys came along and said they would very much like to buy the business and saw huge opportunities for it to grow and it would make an exciting company for them. So 
At this point, I'd been backed by, if you include the Americans, I'd been backed by three private equity backers. Mm. And I felt that, and I'd been CEO for about a decade. Yeah. And the business was over 300 people. And I wasn't in a rush to stop being CEO. But I thought if we were doing another private equity sale, it was important that the business sometime during that process got a new CEO and someone that would be happy to take it beyond 300 people through its next phase of growth. And HG happily agreed to that and did the deal. And so within a year or so, I moved to president and we brought in a new CEO in a a lady called Alex Mahon, who then took on running the business. Wow. What was that psychologically like, stepping away and were you around to support her? Yeah, I, I didn't find it too hard, actually. I got on very well with Alex. I saw Alex as a professional CEO whereas I had sort of accidentally fallen into the role. And it was great to see someone come along and go, okay, it's my job now to take this business to the next stage. And I'd been there for 15, 20 years at that point, and there were a whole load of initiatives and a whole load of deals and a whole load of promises that I had made as a CEO that were just really, really hard to change. But bringing someone new in... Alex could take the blank sheet of paper and say, no, this is what we're going to do to the business. This is how we're going to go forwards with it. And it was great to see someone doing that. At times, it was a bit painful to see bits of it being ripped up and strategies being changed. But at the end of the day, she was very good at what she did. And she absolutely took the business on to another level. And I could see that happening. And it was great to watch it happening. It was great also to learn from it. And I took that opportunity as well to go and start working with some other businesses as chairman and expand what I was doing beyond the foundry. Because really, at that point, I'd only ever worked for two businesses, Snan and Wilcox at the beginning for four years and then the foundry. When did you actually fully step away from the foundry? Was it still private equity owned at that time? Yep. So I think HG had owned it for two or three years when I decided it was time to step away completely. HG then went on to do a, ultimately to do a trade sale to Roper about a year after that, and again had a very successful exit with it at that point in time. It was about three years ago now, I think, <laughs> that I fully stepped away. And the revenue then, from memory, is about 50 million or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it was up around 50 million. Wow. So you've gone from 2 million in 2008 to 50 million in 2018 in sort of 10 years or so, which is a phenomenal, I can't work it out, but it would be well over 20% compound growth year on year. That is really, really rare to get a business that grows so much and with that compounding consistency. Apart from your own talents as CEO, what do you think the main beneficial drivers were to either the market or how you ran the business? We were lucky in many ways. We had the most amazing, talented customers that were continuing to push our technology and push their creativity over that period enormously. And we had to run as fast as they had to run and they kept on pushing us and they kept on wanting more from us. So that absolutely helped from a product point of view. 
I had an amazing team of people around me and working out, I think, for me, how to delegate and get them to be successful and get them to do the work was important. But then private equity helped enormously along the way. I'm often asked questions about, well, how did you choose your private equity partner? And obviously, money has an important part. But it was interesting in retrospect that we got exactly the right partner at the right time. And I look at any one of those partners and think if we'd had them in a different order, it wouldn't have been anywhere near successful. And you're quite focused on R&D, even though private equity doesn't always turn into profit that year. So how did you balance that within the private equity world? Yeah, well, as you could imagine, with my background as an algorithms engineer, I always felt it was important that we should have a strong research branch to the company. And in the very, very early days, I ran that. Simon ran it for a bit. We then had a great lead, a guy called John Stark, who's gone off to set up his own company now. And it was just so fundamental that the foundry was always seen as a thought leader. And the moment we lost that, we would lose our customers because they needed people that were always pushing the boundaries for them. And so it was a relatively easy argument with private equity. And I would just always make sure I could find some money from somewhere in order to make sure we had a good bunch of R&D engineers doing interesting things. And we had a budget, but if Andy or one of the guys would come along and say, here's a really interesting idea, we should just put someone on it for six months, see what happens, I would make sure we would find the money to do that. And the other important thing was we used that R&D team hugely in our marketing and publicity. And it was really important that they could go and talk to customers and talk to the press as well. So we were really quite open about the research we were doing, which was really important. And it all helped people understand that research and trying to be cutting edge underpinned everything at the foundry. It's a phenomenal story about the foundry. I love at the end that you talked about the chair having the value the chair and I know you've now gone on to move your career to plural chairman role I wondered what your reflections were of the role and founders and entrepreneurs choosing chairs yeah it's fascinating so I've chaired four companies since leaving the foundry I would say three have been very successful one less successful the relationship between the CEO and the chair is so important I mean that's fundamental to everything where it's been really really successful for me is where that relationship has worked well personally it's also worked well for me where I can really really understand the technology in the company I kind of quite like being hands-on as a chair I'm not executive in any way but I need to understand the technology that the company is making and selling so in places where I understand the technology have a really strong relationship with the CEO it's worked really well but yeah fundamentally I think it's that relationship and the private equity company is also really important isn't it in that so the relationship has got to work three ways And also, I think it's really important that the chair isn't seen as the person that sits between the CEO and the private equity company. It's a triangle, isn't it? So everyone's got to talk to everyone. And that's really important. And the relationship has got to be strong between all the nodes on the triangle. Do you think it's more important that some people get fixated on having a chairperson from their industry or their niche or or other alternative is to have somebody that just has a lot of experience of almost back to your practical years of building something, building businesses? Where's the bias there, do you think? I think it very much depends on the company. So I think there are cases where it's a really high-tech company, you're doing 
pretty bleeding edge technology and in that case having a chair that understands that technology is important i think if it's a more generic business from a technology point of view having people that are just good at building things and building product and understanding how to build organizations is important so in my experience anyway it slightly depends on the amount of technology involved or not involved and um, coming on to tips for a younger Bill Collis, if you were to give a key advice to founder entrepreneur exploring private equity for the first time. I kind of have two views about private equity. So there's one bit of me that says, don't be worried about private equity. So I can remember us being really, really nervous about the concept of private equity. These money people wanted to come and grab our business. In general, that really isn't the case. For it to be successful, everyone needs to work together And so you need to find some people that you can work together with and then all be successful together. So there's one bit of me that says, don't worry, it will all be fine. And it was fine. And then there's another bit that says, you know what, go and do more referencing than you did. (laughs) You know, it's kind of really, really important when you're looking at private equity and looking at, and quite frankly, hiring your C team or hiring your private equity company It's really easy to just go and talk to people. And obviously, don't go and talk to the people they want you to talk to. Go and talk to the people they're not telling you about, which requires a bit of effort to do, doesn't it? And the time to do that isn't the hour that you're trying to sign the deal. It's in the weeks and months ahead. But go and talk to as many people as you can. You're going to spend the next four years of your life working really, really closely with these people. It's as important to hire as any of your C-team members. And so you should put an awful lot more referencing into it. So don't worry, it will all be fine. And also go and do a huge amount of referencing. Just a couple of quick fire questions to end with, if that's okay. Is there a favourite book of yours that you've used regularly? No, there isn't. I've enjoyed lots of business books. Actually, I'm going to turn to a magazine. In fact, I'm going to turn to two magazines that I really enjoy reading. So one is New Scientist and the other is The Economist. And I think reading those two on a weekly basis actually has given me vast amount of advice and knowledge. And if you look back over your career, was there any person that jumps out as being the most inspiring person or inspirational person to you along your journey? I would probably choose two. So one is Simon. We really built the foundry together over all those years. And then the other is Karen Slatford, my chairman. And together, they both gave me huge amounts of advice in building the business. And I couldn't have done it without either of them. What do you think the most important qualities for a founder entrepreneur going through that journey would be? Resilience. You just need to keep going, don't you? You just need to plough on. And I think you need a healthy dose of belief in yourself. It will all be fine. I can remember saying it will all be fine. And belief and trust in other people as well, because you can't do it all yourself. Yeah. So there are times when you just have to say to your CSO, your CTO, your head of engineering, just go and do it. I can't do it. You go and fix it. I know it'll be fine. Blind optimism. Yeah. And resilience. Yeah, exactly. And just keep going. Keep going forward. Know the direction you're heading in. So you're not going to have a precise map of where you've got to go. But if you're heading to the moon, no, the moon is where you're going. You don't know how you're going to get there, but you know the direction. And making sure you've got that main direction well set. Mm. And then you can take a random route if you want to, but you need to know where you're going. Bill is such a cool, calm and collected character. Almost nothing riles him. And even if it does, it's very hard to tell. 
I don't think he even got hot under the collar when he cycled out to Greece to see me many years ago. Oh, some film scene you may have heard of from The Matrix. Oh yes, 20% year-on-year growth for over a decade. Inspiring business book? Just The Economist. Simple, innovation-led compound growth year after year, every year. Simple and ridiculously effective. If you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Bill and want to hear more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing or The Ascent on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd also love for you to rate and review this episode and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first to access future ones. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, on Twitter, LinkedIn or on Instagram. I've loved talking to you. Bye for now.